Good evening everyone Welcome to our evening Dhamma Tonight all our meditators are absent They are in their rooms We've locked them away In their cells Our three meditators are on the last They've synchronized So they're all on the last bit of the course and They're very, very intent on their practice It's really good to see Which is a thing to rejoice over We have three meditators now One of them finished this morning But uh, she's doing She's continuing on So great to see people when they're in that zone their practice is really succeeding So great Every time someone succeeds at the course Every time someone sticks it out You never know It's not an easy thing So tonight I thought I'd talk about success The Buddha's teaching on success is I would say one of the most widely applicable teachings Most useful, broadly speaking When we get all, And I get all these questions about people how, how they can solve their problems in life I think this, this uh, teaching Would be very useful Very useful to answer these sorts of questions People have challenges in their lives How to succeed At anything you know. How to succeed in the world How to succeed in relationships How to succeed in business How to succeed in, in, in spirituality of course how to be prosperous and successful The Buddha taught what are called the four idipada Idipada are the four uh, roads to power really to mastery To success I don't, I don't suppose the real translation is success It's more just about Mastery And I don't know that the Buddha would actually have Thought to apply these four to uh, To wor the worldly life But They are the four, the four ways to succeed in anything four, four things you need to succeed They clearly are I mean, it's just 
It's such a good teaching that the Buddha gave us, very simple and clear, something to always keep in mind no matter what you do in life, most especially when you're meditating. Keep these four things in mind and understand them and, and your meditation will succeed. There are four principles of med of principles to keep in mind. Anyone in spiritual practice needs to keep in mind. Can't succeed without these four. So the first is chanda. Person needs uh, to be interested in what one's doing. You have to want to do it. You have to be inclined towards it. very hard to succeed at something if it's not something you are inclined to do something you like doing right if you're, if you're doing a job that you really hate it works against your success If you don't like to meditate, not easy to succeed, right? If you're just forcing yourself to meditate, sort of like holding your nose and uh, doing it, not easy to succeed. This is why some people criticize insight meditation, because it's not comfortable. They talk about more comfortable types of meditation as being better, right? I, mean, I don't think anyone would disagree. It's it's much better to be ple to have a pleasant meditation. All other things considered, it'd be much better if we didn't have to struggle. And, but of course the problem with comfortable meditations and pleasant ones is they don't actually generally challenge you or bring you out of your comfort zone. And they generally don't lead you to enlightenment as a result. So how do you practice something that challenges you? Something that forces you to change without hating it? Right? I think the only mindfulness meditation has this power, has the power to allow you to do this. Can't imagine I think with anything else you you just have to change your mind about it. you know you have to actually make it comfortable, make it enjoyable, or else stop doing it. Of course, with mindfulness, it's quite different because our dislike of anything, including meditation, is independent of the actual thing, including the meditation. So if you dislike meditating, it has nothing to do with meditation. It's your own reaction and judgment of it, which is independent. That's part of what we're learning in meditation, right? Meditation itself isn't exempt from our defilements and isn't exempt from our study of our defilements. 
you don't like meditating, well, it's still a disliking. It's just like any other disliking. And you be, you be mindful of that. I mean, how to how to overcome the dislike of meditation is not to force yourself to do it, even though you dislike it, even though you don't want to meditate. The answer is to meditate on the disliking. When it becomes the object, it's no longer a problem. When instead of using the dislike and and having it be a part of your approach to meditation, yes, I dislike it, but no, I'm meditating on the disliking. And there's no problem. But be clear. If you dislike meditating, it's going to be very much against your potential for success. This isn't something that you should do with do even though you don't want to do it. If you don't want to do it, well, of course the other option is to just stop, but of course that's not really an option, so be mindful of the disliking. Meditate on it. The first, the second is really a, you need effort. Effort is, I mean, in a in a in a mundane sense. So this, of course, this is true with any work you do. If you don't put out effort, you don't succeed. But with meditation, again, it's a little bit tricky. It's a little bit different because if you just put out effort, it's very wrong actually. If you just push and push and push, it's. It's not actually right effort. Right effort is a momentary thing. It's in the moment that you actually do it. it doesn't have a it doesn't have a, a a value really. You either have it or you don't. Are you mindful of the object or are you not? If you're mindful, there's effort there as well. The effort to be mindful, right? You have made the choice to be mindful, really. That's the effort. And the effort to do that repeatedly. The effort to return again and again to mindfulness it's not the effort to walk or the effort to sit if you're tired of walking you know we do a lot of meditation and if you do a lot of walking meditation and it becomes tiresome or you're tired of sitting then that has to be the opposite the object of your meditation It's interesting how if you're really mindful, fatigue doesn't bother you. There's a great energy involved. But practically speaking, on a mundane level, it just means do it. You have to walk even when you maybe feel tired. 
to sit even when you feel tired doing it and being mindful of the tired rather than mindful of the fatigue rather than letting the fatigue control your practice you need to do it well, we get home from work sometimes and feel too tired to meditate so the effort is making this decision to, to be mindful and again focusing on the fatigue as, as the object rather than letting it control you you need effort if you don't do it doesn't get done with any work and this is applicable in any, in any situation of course you don't put out effort no success the third thing you need is citta citta means you have to keep your mind on it you have to pay attention you have to um, you have to focus on it Right? You don't focus on your work or even study. You don't study for your exams. If instead you go out and party or you don't ever spend time doing your work, it doesn't get done, right? Or if you do it but you're not focused on it, you're not paying attention. You do a sloppy job, you do a poor job. Of course, not this isn't truer, truer nowhere else than meditation. If you're not paying attention in meditation, what are you doing, right? If you're meditating but your mind is elsewhere, your mind is focused on something else, you're not going to succeed. If you're not here and now, paying attention. Attention is a big buzzword in, in insight meditation, I think. Uh, we talk about this a lot, bare attention, people talk about it. A sign that you're being mindful is attention. If you have a lot of mindfulness, it feels like you're paying attention. Mindfulness grasps the object, confronts it. They're not the same thing, I think, but... Um, paying attention or being attentive is certainly a, a, a result of, of mindfulness. Whatever you do, you have to keep you have to keep it in mind. Keep focused on it. both in terms of remembering to do it and in terms of when you do do it be present you know whatever you're going to do in in life if you want to succeed at it you have to be there and be present and the fourth is vimangsa 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 is an interesting word grammatically i just found out it actually comes from mang or man i think the this root having to do with thinking and the mind and it should have been mimangsa in, but it becomes vi so it has nothing to do with the prefix vi which means special it's vi which anyway 
I always thought it had something to do with we for special, but it doesn't. It just means mimangsa. It's an interesting if you think grammatically the it's a reduplication of the beginning mang mangsati mimangsati. They just add they do this in Pali. But if you think of that mentally it it's not just thinking about something, you you mimangsati, right? You 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 roll it around kind of. It has this feeling to it. Easy to understand why they pick this this form to talk about this concept, how language evolves. It's very natural. So this means to consider. It's not like citta. Citta means to keep focused on it, to keep it in mind. Citta means mind. So citta means you have to mind it or be mindful of it. Vimangsa is when you're focused on it Because when you focus on something It's easy to just get tunnel vision right? And even it reinforces your bad habits If you're not careful You can focus on something Doing it, doing it, doing it And never change Never, never uh, improve So your efficiency is very low Someone might do walking and sitting meditation for many hours, but without stepping back and saying, hey, am I doing this properly? Without considering their progress. I think this, a lot of this goes on when people, when, when, when we have these interviews, people are forced to, to reflect on their practice. How was their practice during the day? Without this, it's easy to... Uh, reinforce your bad habits and get stuck. You know? After some time, you you slowly, slowly uh, get off track. You can get caught up in something. Vimang uh, says, "What brings you back?" Vimang says, "Hey, I'm not being mindful of this. I'm not seeing this clearly. I'm developing." Veering off path, developing bad habits It goes with anything in life You can't just work like an ox You have to be clever You want to succeed, you want to progress You have to be able to reflect and, and consider that your methods might be wrong Just because you've been doing something a certain way for so long Like Ananda, right? Famous story of Vimangsa He was uh, meditating all night All night Dead set on becoming enlightened And it just wasn't happening And then uh, just before dawn He just thought to himself He said, wait a minute Here I've been walking all night I put out too much effort So what if I were to lie down And balance my faculties Cultivate concentration And that's all it took as he was lying down, he became enlightened. Before his head touched the pillow, and once, it, but his feet were already off the ground, he became enlightened. So he's special in that he, he he became enlightened in none of the four postures. But this was Vimangsa. This was considering, hmm, maybe I've got to change. This is the ability to adapt and adjust. It's of course in. You can see this in, in the world when people um, 
have a job that they do and they do it the same way, the same way, never thinking that maybe they could do it differently and improve. And if anyone suggests that they could improve, they're often quite reactionary, thinking that it works fine the way they do it. This is a bad sign. The inability to change, the inability to adapt, and so on. It will hinder your ability to succeed. Flexibility is important, adaptability. These are all signs of someone who is mindful. Someone who's not stuck in attached to anything or, or stuck in ego and so on. The ability to adapt when things change, they don't get upset, they change. And they adapt. This is a sign of ability. Well, I mean just we, we monks have the ability to consider and, and adjust, not just plow on. So there you go, there's the Dhamma for tonight. I suppose there are some questions. I'll go and check that out. If I can log in, yep. Let's see here. What type of experience is intuition? Sensing danger or sensing the correct way to respond to something without really thinking. Sensing something isn't clear to me what sense it belongs to. Well, it's mind. Um, intuition can be wrong, but it involves the it involves how we process things, how we put information together, how we uh, the answer we come up with. When I say, "What is two plus two? Four is is your answer. Right? That's simple intuition. You're faced with a question, two plus two. And it's it's that, I don't know, I mean it's probably more complicated than this, but it's basically that, the ability to answer that. So when you're given a, um, when you're given a set of, of, uh, of phenomena or stimuli, it's a much more complicated equation, but the answer you come up with is, uh, "Hey, this is this is danger. Some this person's lying to me, or so on like that." Um, if you're talking about some sort of extrasensory intuition, um, then then I mean, all that is is I would say there's more to the equation than we understand. Suppose someone comes to you and. They're not doing anything, but you just intuit that they've got it out for you. I mean, sometimes that's wrong. Sometimes you're wrong and they don't actually have it out, to you, out for you. But sometimes it's remarkable that, hey, it turns out that I knew it. This person had it out for me. The, the equation is just more complicated. It probably has something to do with past lives. Uh, may even have something to do with being able to read people's uh, emotions, that kind of thing read their minds or something like that but if you're talking about which sense it is it's it's mental it's it's how the mind sanya works it's it comes down to the basics of sanya how we perceive things 
and the correct way to respond of course it's not always the correct way again you can be very wrong and be intuitively you know this is the correct way and be very wrong or you can be mildly wrong it's just how we answer the equation it's a good question a little bit uh, a little bit intellectual and all that entirely useful from a meditation point of view but interesting protection you draw a line on killing stating that killing plants is okay but any sentient beings is wrong okay well let's be clear nothing is wrong killing is not wrong you can murder you can kill everyone on earth and it will never be wrong acts are never wrong what's wrong is the intention and it's wrong because it perverts your mind right not, it's not wrong to kill people because they die It's wrong to kill people because it hurts you um, I mean there's not really a distinction It hurts you because it's awful to kill people And it just makes you a psychopath But uh, that's the reason So killing plants is uh, looked at as, as innocuous Because you know, no one really is feels guilty or bad or Sorry for having killed a plant and The plants aren't really capable of suffering They wither, you know, that's about it But if you kill an insect, I mean insects clearly don't want to die They're clearly afraid of you um, If you ever, even a mosquito, if you grab it by the legs it freaks out, right? And there's mind there. I mean, there's stories of, of angels living in trees, tree spirits. And when you cut the tree, they freak out. So, uh, I mean, you think you could argue that there is some, perhaps some... Because remember, this body doesn't have mind. The 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 mind is what's associated. The mind is just clinging to it. It has been clinging to it since it was formed in the womb. Um, so so a mind can can cling to anything. It's just that. So so. It really you know killing killing a. A sentient being is just that we're clear that there's a mind that is very, very much dependent and caught up with this body, such that if you do kill it, it's really going to cause a lot of stress and suffering for that mind on a very intense level, you know, even to the point of, of course, feeling physical pain, but also great mental distress. If there's this tree spirit living in a tree, you might think, hmm, maybe I shouldn't cut these big trees. I mean, if you, if you know there's a tree spirit, there's a spirit living in the tree, it's probably better not to, for the same reason, right? Um, so, so it's not about being wrong, it's about not being a jerk, <laughs> you know, not cultivating mind states that, are, that cause stress and suffering for other beings, if you can help it. Right? I mean, torturing, 
torturing living beings for the same reason. If you torture someone's body, it, it causes reaction in their minds. It, and if it's done out of malice, if it's done when you do it, you know, intending to cause suffering to others, it perverts your own mind. That's the real problem. It's an interesting dilemma. I mean, it's not um, it's not cut and dried the way people think that oh, plants just don't have mind. It's it's not really that because body doesn't have mind as well. It's about the mind that is attached to the body. You know, if you if you if you if you take a baseball bat to someone's car, it also causes suffering to that person. So because they're very much attached to their car, so. It's like it's like killing a person. It's like torturing a person if you beat up their car because they, the anguish that they feel is very real. Which is, I mean, it's it's an order of magnitude greater when our attachment to the body when you when you hurt someone's body or kill the body. It's a very deep attachment. It's common to see things as they are. See how non-beneficial indulgence are. So do we try to avoid them in order to see the hindrance more clearly? I feel that when I resist it, my practice is more pure and I can protect. And in truth, it doesn't cure me from them. I'm still attached to them. That takes, you know, I mean, I get what you're asking, but it takes a lot more effort. You really have to put in intensive effort, sometimes for months or years, to free yourself from all um, indulgence and lust. So, I mean, avoiding, yes, uh, frees you from them, but it doesn't, it's not a permanent fix. Eventually you have to face them. Visaya bimukha. You have to face them, face the, the experience with mindfulness. Not avoiding it. You know, I mean, you back to start off. It's important that you back off, but eventually you have to face and see through it. I mean, well, it's only by seeing seeing it clear by uh, observing it. Uh, you know, objectively, that you can see how useless it is. Avoiding it isn't going to do that. And so. I understand this tension, but the answer is really just much more intensive practice to the point where you're able to, it's like a laboratory where you're able to see moments of attachment and cut them off as they arise or, or you know, see, see them as stressful and so on. And through intensive practice seeing that again and again and that's what frees you should time seem to go by faster in deep meditation oh sometimes it does maybe and we're not practicing deep meditation so sometimes it goes quick sometimes it goes slow it's it's impermanent Are there any teachings related to humor mm. humor is not generally seen in a positive light we frown on humor. Uh, I know there are many monks who are very funny and humorous. In Thailand, it's a big thing. There are very funny monks. Some Thai monks are very funny. Um, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with seeing the humor in something. 
but to to make that to actively purposefully try to make people laugh is problematic because it creates attachment it creates liking you know you like that and we like dhamma talks if you like the talk i think the only liking would be the liking the only liking that's of any value is the liking of the dhamma if if you like the buddha's teaching on on the four roads to success then i would say that's generally considered positive but if you like the way i deliver it that's dangerous maybe you like the sound of my voice or maybe i tell a story and you think what a what a good story it makes you smile makes you laugh Generally problematic because that's liking something that is not dhamma. It's liking something superfluous. Like if you laugh at something, there's a pleasure there, and you like that pleasure. I mean, not always. If you're if you're laughing mindfully, then that's not a problem. But you have to be mindful. Is there a way to see for myself that rebirth is bound to happen when I still have attachment at death, instead of just believing in the concept? You don't have mm. see suffering in life, but not able to believe in rebirth is causing issues because I'm not able to commit myself. Well, if you're if that's if that's hmm. No, I don't go for it. You don't need to know your you don't need to remember rebirth past life in order to commit yourself to the practice completely. That's an excuse that you're making. You don't need to believe in past lives or future lives. I mean, I think a belief that there is nothing after death is dangerous. I mean, that's a belief but if you just give up that belief and don't think about future lives and so on, you'll be okay. Because the future lives is just, an, it's not anything different, it's just an extrapolation of this. So as long as you understand how this works, and that's all, if that's how you understand it to be in the future, you'll be fine. Don't worry about death. Yes, it's it's... Conceptually useful to think, hey, I might go to hell if I'm a really bad person, but if you're into meditation, that's not really an issue. Focus on focus on understanding how the mind works, and at death it's no different. Not categorically. It's still just experience. So if you're not able to commit yourself to the practice completely, there's something else wrong. Maybe you don't like the practice, and then you have to develop chanda. Is the term Buddha Puta reserved for noble disciples or any monk in general? Um, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a loose term. I think it's something the Buddha used uh, rhetorically. There's a rhetorical value to it. But uh, my, my inclination would be to say it refers to noble, enlightened ones, arahants, really. But I don't think I don't think it's something that was ever defined as only this and only this. But uh, I, I would I would I would 
be surprised if it meant anything other than arahant or at least enlightened being. Isn't killing more about ending life? Cutting down a tree probably does not kill the tree spirit. Destroying a car won't kill the owner, but neither does killing the body. If you kill the body, it doesn't kill the mind. The mind is always being born and die. <laughs> You're thinking of something. See, this is the danger of getting too conceptual. There's nothing categor it's not categorically different. Cut down the tree spirit cut down the tree, the tree spirit has to move on. You kill the body, the mind has to move on. It's not categorically different. You destroy the car, the car owner has to get a new car. It's actually not from a point of view of the mind, it's not categorically. I may be this may be a heretic thing to say, but I'm I think I'm on solid ground. Uh, I know we talk a lot about all these special mind states, but they're very much contrived. They're not really what's really going on. Anyway, that might be uh, might be some debate over that one, but I'm going to stand by my words. You can't end the life; you only end the physical life. The mind is born and dies every moment. There you go. There's all the questions for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night.